Good morning, good morning. It's good to be here and welcome. Uh, My name's Alan, one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. And so if you're new here, this is your first time, um, welcome. I'm just so glad you're here. We'd love to to meet you after the service. Uh, We are gonna be continuing in our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, you can bring that out and you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, the third book in your New Testament uh, we'll read that in a few minutes, and if you want to use your phone, that's fine, and we'll have the verses on the screen behind me uh, as well. But as we're uh, getting ready for that, let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in together. God, I think the song that we just sung is so true. We don't want to hear from any other voice. We don't want to... Listen to any other word but yours. And God, I am so aware of the fact that we have not gathered here today to hear Alan's word or my thoughts, but we have gathered here today to hear from you. And so my prayer this morning, God, is so simple, would you just, by your spirit, move in our hearts as we read from your word. God, would you use the things that I am going to say to help all of us learn just from your word and nothing else. God, I pray that your spirit this morning would change us, would change our thoughts about you, would change our thoughts about ourselves, would change our thoughts about how you love us and how we are reconciled to you and made right with you, Lord. I I wonder if there's anyone in the room who is not reconciled with you this morning. Or if there's anyone in the room that is looking to the wrong things to get themselves to you. And so God, as we open your word, would your spirit teach us, change us, and maybe for some of us, save us for the first time. We love you, God. We ask that you would do that work this morning by your power and your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, You know, You know what is probably, I think, this is my opinion, one of the most refreshing phrases or statements that somebody in our world today can make, especially a public person, someone who might be on the media a lot or a politician or somebody like that. What is one of the most refreshing statements that they can make? In my opinion, it's, I was wrong. Right? In our culture today, that, that's very rare for someone, especially a public person, to say, to admit, hey, I was wrong. Let, let me uh, give you a scenario. Let's, let's say you're at work and you, know, you have a coworker, you're, you're in a meeting with a coworker, you're discussing something pertaining to what you guys do, and this particular topic comes up in conversation, and your coworker is particularly passionate about this subject. 
So you offer your point of view on whatever this subject is, and your coworker starts to get passionate. And if your coworker is anything like me, Enneagram 8, if you know what that is, then basically when they get passionate about something and they debate something, most people interpret that as anger. Even though it's not anger, it's just passion. And so your coworker in all of their passion and what others kind of see as anger begins to just dress you down with all of their opinions on the matter, all of their knowledge on the subject, disrespects you because they see you as someone who is not as knowledgeable about the subject as you. And so that just leaves you very uninterested in the conversation or ever talking to this person again, especially about a subject that might end up in a debate. But what if that person later in the day called you and said this to you, hey, hey, earlier in the meeting, um, I got real excited and real passionate about what we were talking about And I know about myself that when that happens, there's a lot of times I get really disrespectful. And so I was not considerate of you. I was not considerate of your point of view. I was not listening. I was disrespectful. And I'm really sorry about that. And you need to know that that was wrong of me to do that. I was wrong. If they called you and said that, how would your opinion of that person change? Would their admission of being wrong make you more likely to engage in conversation with that person in the future or less likely? Right? I mean, the obvious answer is that our respect level for that person would actually increase, even though we had the hard encounter with them. Our trust of that person would increase, and our desire to engage them in later conversation would increase. Why? Because this is someone who's willing to admit when they're wrong. Even better, this is someone who has the self-awareness to realize when they're wrong and they go and make it right without being prompted. And that's rare in our culture today. That's refreshing. Do they have an annoying debate habit? Yes, But if they're willing to admit when they're wrong, then honest relationship is actually possible now. And who are the hardest people to trust? It's the people who will never admit when they're wrong. It's the people who claim to never have done wrong that are the hardest to trust and the hardest to follow. And it's most frustrating when they have power. We inherently trust people, listen to this, who have intellectual humility. They don't see themselves as always being right. There's a a very interesting article um, published by Brian Resnick of Vox, published a couple of weeks ago. And the article's title was this, Intellectual Humility, The Importance of Knowing You Might Be Wrong. And in this article, Resnick talks about how the availability of better scientific and research methods in our world today has allowed us to retest many landmark research projects that have shaped so much of what we think about topics like medicine and psychology. And so what they're finding is that they're able to go back, retest these research projects and actually prove that their conclusion was wrong because we have better research methods today. So he says this, he comments this in the article, He says, one high-profile effort to retest 100 psychological experiments 
found only 40% replicated with more rigorous methods. It's been a painful period for social scientists who've had to deal with failed replications of classic studies and realize their research practices are often weak. And so this article is about this need that we have for intellectual humility within the scientific community. That we actually need to create a culture where it's okay to admit when you're wrong. Hey, I got that wrong. When we did that whole project and I published that whole journal and that big uh, journal, it was wrong. But unfortunately, that's very rare. And when I was reading this article, it was so refreshing for someone to remind all of us that it's okay to be wrong, that none of us are perfect, that we're all human. We have blind spots. We're not going to be able to get every single thing right. And that it's better to admit when you're wrong than to always pretend to be right. And even though we probably agree with that notion, it's so hard to admit when you're wrong. It's refreshing to watch somebody else admit when they're wrong. It's very easy to notice when others are wrong. But when we're the ones in the wrong, ooh, that's hard to admit, especially publicly. It's humbling when we have to admit that. This morning, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to read about the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, earlier in our study, in our sermon series, we talked about the birth of John the Baptist, and we talked about how the Old Testament prophesies about John the Baptist. The Old Testament says that before the Messiah comes, Jesus, a prophet's going to come to announce the arrival of that Messiah, that's John the Baptist, and that's what he does. So in our text this morning, John the Baptist is coming on the scene. He's grown up, and he's coming on the scene. But John's not going around and saying, hey, the Messiah's here. He's here. Just wanted y'all to know. That's not what John's doing. Actually, what John is doing, he's going around, he's saying, hey, the Messiah's coming. It's going to be here real soon, and you need to be prepared for that. And so he's going around explaining to people how they need to prepare for the arrival, for the, the coming of Jesus. And what we're going to discover this morning is that what it means to prepare yourself for the coming of the Messiah means to confess in your heart and publicly that the way that I'm living my life is not working. I'm wrong. I'm unclean and I cannot cleanse myself and I need God to help me. That's what John's going to say is what you need to do to prepare for the coming of Jesus. To admit that. Everybody. And as we study this text this morning, I want you to notice something. That John is not calling upon the people to prepare themselves by cleaning up their life, by purifying themselves, by doing some sort of religious act that's going to make them presentable to God, he's calling on people to prepare themselves by having humility and confessing their need for help. And as you're gonna see in our text this morning, that is easier said than done. 
So let's jump in to our text. I'm going to read uh, Luke chapter 3. This morning we're going to do verses 1 to 6, but I'm going to start just by reading verses 1 to 2. So let's read this together. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, let's just stop there. That was a lot of contextual details. Um, but don't gloss over that too quick. I think verses like that, it's real easy to just go through them real fast. But you need to understand, why did Luke write this gospel? In chapter one, he told us why he wrote this gospel. He says, I'm writing this gospel so that you can have certainty about Jesus, that he was real. And the things that he said he did and the things that were recorded about him were real. So what Luke is doing here is he's being a really good historian. He is very concerned about ensuring that not only he tells us about Jesus, but he provides enough historical geographical, political context so we can accurately place Jesus in world history, all right? So we're gonna take a quick detour, real quick, because I, I want you to understand the context of this, and so let's explain this, all right? So what Luke first does in verse one here is he's gonna first give us the Roman context, all right? Remember, between your two testaments, the Old and New Testament, there's about 400 years between there. During that time, Rome came into the land of Israel and took over. All right, so Rome's in charge, the emperor of Rome's in charge of the area. So in verse one, what we get is a date. Uh, when Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus was on the throne. All right, the, 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 the storied, you know, Augustus Caesar was the emperor of Rome. He died in AD 14, and Tiberius Caesar takes over. So in verse one, we're in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So this dates what we're doing right here about AD 29, okay? That's what Luke did. He just gave you a date in world history for when this is occurring. That's a, that's a big deal. And then the rest of verse one, what it does is it talks about four different individuals who are ruling over Palestine on behalf of Rome, all right? So again, when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was a Roman client king over this whole area. All right, let me, let me show you a map here real quick. If you come up here, actually look at this. We're, we're going to class, I have a laser pointer. All right, all right, so this whole area here Okay, this is Palestine, this Mediterranean Sea out here. You've got the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River all the way down, the Dead Sea, Jerusalem's up in this area right here. All right, so Herod the Great, when Jesus is born, is ruler on behalf of Rome over all of this, all right? But when the Herod of Great, when his reign was over, his kingdom was divided into four different regions with four different tetrarchs over it. A tetrarch just means ruler over a fourth. All right, and so that's what we got right here. So let's take a look at what our verse says. So our text says that Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, right here. Now, at first, when Herod came off the throne, one of his sons, I think it was Archelaus, was the tetrarch over Judea, but he was terrible at his job, so they kicked him out, and Pontius Pilate came in. 
You might recognize Pontius Pilate because later in the Gospels, he is the one who will authorize the execution of Jesus. And so he is ruler over the region of Judea. Then we have Herod in our text. This is actually Herod Antipas. He was a son of Herod the Great. He's ruler over Galilee up here, right? This is the main place of Jesus' ministry up in this area. Then you had Philip, who's another son of Herod the Great. He was a tetrarch of Iteria right here, and Trachonitis right there. All right, and then our last one was uh, Lysanias, who was tetrarch over Abilene up in this area. Okay, so if you see what Luke is doing here, He's trying to place Jesus in history. And so everyone, secular historians and religious historians can say, okay, this is exactly when Jesus is doing the things that Luke says he's doing. So that's kind of the Roman context. And then he gives us the Jewish context. In verse two, he says that this is during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, the, the thing with this is the Jews only have one high priest at a time. So Annas was high priest uh, for a while. Rome didn't like him and kind of had him deposed. So he kind of became high priest emeritus. Then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, came in and was high priest over the Jews during that time. So we have the Roman context. We have the Jewish context. And in that, John the Baptist now comes on the scene. Okay? All right, class time is over. And we'll go back to our text. Um, but that might sound like a lot of meaningless details for you, but Luke is fulfilling exactly his purpose for writing this. So we can have certainty about Jesus and we need to be thankful for his diligence. All right, so back to the text. John the Baptist is coming on the scene. He's ready to begin his prophetic mission of calling people to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. For Jesus, obviously Jesus had been born uh, already, but he had not begun his messianic ministry yet. So with that, let's go to verses three to six. It says this. And he, that's John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So if we went back to our map, don't worry about it, but that whole region, the Jordan River goes up the entire region. So he's going around that whole area, all of Palestine, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse four, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John the Baptist is coming on the scene, telling people to prepare for the coming of the Messiah through being baptized. And that baptism would symbolize a repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And then what Luke does is he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses three to five. That's what we just read, just a quote of that, which is a prophecy about John the Baptist that was written about 700 years prior to this. And Isaiah says, 700 years ago, that what John the Baptist will do is call on the people to prepare for the coming of the Lord, like John is doing. 
And all this imagery that we see here in Isaiah of making paths straight and filling the valleys and lowering the mountains and the crooked becoming straight, and all of that is imagery that describes the results of when we prepare for the coming of the Messiah. So John the Baptist is saying, you need to be baptized as a sign of repentance to prepare. And therefore, that means all of this imagery out of Isaiah 40 that explains what will happen, this imagery that explains what will happen if you participate in this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. All right? So if you do this baptism, if you're repenting in your heart, then mountains are gonna be lowered, valleys are gonna be filled, the crooked are gonna become straight. That's what's going to happen. So what does that mean? Let's see if we can explain this to everyone. Um, the first question we need to ask is this. What kind of baptism is John talking about here? Uh, if you've been baptized before, you know that, that baptism is a public declaration of your faith and belief in Jesus and what he has accomplished for you through his death and his resurrection. And Jesus did not institute the practice of baptism that we practice today till after he was crucified and raised from the dead. That's when he told the church and the disciples, hey, go make disciples of all nations and, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit. And so John here is calling people to baptism before Jesus executed his plan of salvation. So what baptism is John talking about here? It's a different, it's a different baptism than what Jesus instituted and what we practice today. And I think the best way to answer this question is to put yourself in the shoes of the Jews that John would be preaching to. So John's going around the whole area, he's preaching to the Jews what would they hear? It's an important question. Because here's a guy who's coming out of the wilderness. He has lived in the sticks his entire life. So he probably looks as if he has lived there his entire life. He's kind of crazy. He's probably a little socially awkward. And he comes out and he is telling you to prepare for the Messiah through baptism. And the question is, how would have the Jews interpreted what John was telling them to do when he said baptism? Well, actually, baptism was a common practice then. It was something that we call proselyte baptism. And proselyte baptism was a part of the criteria if a Gentile, a non-Jew, wanted to convert and become a Jew. And if he wanted to do that, if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, there was three things you had to do. The first thing you had to do is confess and believe in the teachings, the Jewish teachings. The second thing is you had to get circumcised, which was the covenant sign of God's people. And the third thing you had to do was be baptized, rather, you know, dunked in water. And the reason for this is because as a Gentile, he was considered, this person would be considered to be unclean. And therefore, if they wanted to become a Jew, they had to be washed. So again, put yourself in the shoes of a devout Jew, one who has always followed the law, one who has followed all of the cleanliness laws and purification laws. There's lots of them in our Old Testament. One who has memorized the Torah, one who always went to the feasts, did all of the rituals, did everything right. Put yourself in his shoes 
And John the Baptist, this guy who's been living in the woods his whole life, is coming out of the woods and saying, you need to be baptized. In other words, you are unclean. And you need to be washed in the same way that a Gentile needs to be washed. A Gentile, one who's never opened the Torah before. One who's never followed any of the laws or gone to any of the feasts or ever been to the temple or has ever even un, never even heard of cleanliness laws. You are unclean in the same way that they are unclean and you need to be washed. How's that going to go down? How do you think most people responded to John the Baptist declaring to the Jews that they need to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins? See, when we think of religion in our world, you could lump most people into one of two categories. We think of religion. On one hand, you have what I'm going to call the law keepers. You know, these are the people, no, no matter what religion or belief system they follow, they are devout, they adhere to some sort of law or standard or moral code, and they believe that if they are faithful to that law or that moral code, that that will earn them favor with God. You got the law keepers, right? So Islam, obey the will of Allah, and, and you will be judged by your good or bad deeds, and we'll see how it turns out. Buddhism, follow the path, do good deeds, and eventually you'll achieve better rebirths in, in nirvana. Hinduism, live according to dharma, and eventually you will achieve nirvana. Uh, Mormonism, complete the, the saving ordinances to reach heaven. Jehovah's Witness, join their society. Follow all of the rules set forth by the watchtower, and you'll have eternal life. This is many, many Christians. Read your Bible every day. Make sure you go to church. Do not cuss. Keep yourself pure. And God will approve of you if you live that lifestyle. This was the people of God in the Old Testament at the time that Luke was writing this. And John the Baptist, the people he was preaching to. Follow the law. Go to the feast. Do the cleanliness laws. Memorize the Torah. And you will have favor with God. The law keepers. It's a very simple formula. There is a law, I am able through hard work, it won't be easy to keep that law, but if I do, God will give me salvation. Picture this, it's like there's this big road between you and God, so you're separated, so you need to come together, you need to be reconciled, all right? And, and, and the law keeper's view of that road is it's full of steep mountains to climb and really steep and deep valleys to traverse in order for you to get to God. Laws and traditions and ordinances and unwritten social rules within church and rituals and standards, all of that, you gotta go up and down those mountains and valleys to get to God. And with hard work, it's possible. On the other hand, you have the law breakers. And of course, the law keepers see themselves as better and more worthy of God than the law breakers. The law breakers are those who don't live according to any sort of morality. You know, they lie, they cheat, they defraud others, they're unfaithful. 
It's all the people that our society and all the religious people would say, hey, those are the bad people, the people who don't keep themselves pure, the people who don't have self-control, the people who have filthy mouths, the people who have no respect for any law, the people who are messed up, the jacked up people, people who if they, even if they wanted to clean their life up, they couldn't because they're stuck because that's who they are. They're a lawbreaker. They themselves couldn't even fathom that God would ever accept them. And if there was a road connecting them to God, it would be a rough, crooked road. A road full of potholes and obstacles and trees that have fallen across it. A road that's so crooked, so many detours and off-ramps that as you travel down that road, it almost feels like you're actually getting farther away from God than closer to him. See, the law keepers are the strong ones who climb mountains and traverse valleys and the lawbreakers get tripped up and make no progress toward God, Right? Isn't that the way it works? The law keepers are closer to God than the law breakers. Isn't that how religion works? Right, I'm a pastor standing on the stage preaching a sermon right now. I have a master's of divinity. I know a lot about the Bible. Aren't I closer to God than than many of you who, who are not clergy? Clearly my title pastor means that I can climb those mountains and get down those valleys faster and better than than most people because that's how religion works, right? That's what God values, right? So who is this guy who's been living in the woods and is calling upon everyone, both the law keepers and the law breakers, the religious pros and all the sinners to be baptized. And not just any baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was announcing here, here's what's going on in your Bible. John was announcing here that with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, who was about to come on the scene, it was going to be a new order what the Bible calls a new covenant. The old temporary covenant of the law was passing away and this Messiah was bringing a new covenant. And this new covenant says that what the purpose of that old covenant of the law, what the purpose of all of that was to prove that we're all lawbreakers. There's not one of us who is a law keeper, who is strong enough to make our way to God, who can climb those mountains and get through those valleys. And whether we view ourselves as a law keeper or a law breaker, there is now only one way to God. And that is through repentance for the forgiveness of our sins. Right, well, what is, what is repentance? It's the, the turning away from your current way of life, changing your mind about God and doing something different. So for the law keepers, for the Jews at the time, it, it meant having the humility to go and, and be baptized and confess, I'm wrong. I, I have not 
perfectly kept this law. I, I am unclean. And trying harder to keep this law and climb those mountains and get down those valleys, it's not getting me closer to God. I need help. I need forgiveness. For the lawbreaker, it meant recognizing the righteousness of God and the wickedness of their ways and confessing, I, I'm wrong. And, and I have no excuse. No one's to blame but me. I have sinned against a holy God. My way is the wrong way. I need help because I can't get myself to God. And our text this morning tells us that this baptism of repentance that John was offering would prepare the way for the Messiah. Because what will the Messiah do? We read it in our text this morning. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked way will be made straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. When we humble ourselves before God, I don't care if you're the Pope or sitting on death row or anything in between. I don't care if you're an addict or the most straight edge person there is or anything in between that. When we humble ourselves and have the humility to say, I need help, I need forgiveness, the road is treacherous. The mountain is too high. The valley is way too low. The way is too crooked for me to get across it. We prepare the way for the Lord. The valleys are filled and the mountains are lowered. The crooked paths become straight when we go before God and say, God, I need you to do this for me. And when we do that, Jesus applies every bit of his saving work to you specifically and individually. Jesus came to, to take our sin, all of the crooked ways and all of the potholes, and he straightens them out through dying on the cross in your place so that you won't be judged by your sin. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to live a righteous life that was perfectly pleasing to God, to climb those mountains and get across those valleys on your behalf, making the way straight leading to God. Jesus came not only to forgive you and become the way that we get to God, but he also came to transform you, to sanctify you, to make you a brand new creation. And this is available, as verse six says in our text, to all flesh, to everybody. Not just the religious elite, not just the law keepers, but to everybody. I mean, when you walked in here this morning, I don't wonder how you would classify yourself. Maybe you see yourself as a law keeper you kind of, the things that you look to to feel secure in your salvation are all the things that you do. And how well you climb mountains and get across valleys. Or maybe you walked in here this morning and you just think of yourself as a lawbreaker. And you think to yourself, why am I even here? Every time I try to get closer to God, I feel like I'm just getting further away. And if people really knew who I was and all the junk that's in my life or in my past, they would just shove me into that category. 
We must prepare the way of the Lord, no matter where we are, by humbling ourselves and confessing our need for Jesus to save us because we can't do it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you cannot get up those mountains or across those valleys or navigate the crooked way. Jesus straightens it for you. So I'm curious who in here is tired of the religious way where we pretend we're always right and we never admit when we're wrong or who in here feels like the lawbreaker. They've messed up their life way too much to get right with God. Jesus says in John 14, six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. No amount of law keeping and good deeds will get you to the Father without Jesus. You can't climb that mountain. No amount of law breaking in sin is too crooked for Jesus to overcome. So if you fit into one of those two categories, hear me say this to you this morning, you need Jesus. Not as a religious person you look to and worship. Not as just a product of your devotions in the morning. Not as just an identity statement, hey, I follow Jesus. No, you need Jesus to straighten the way for you. You need to rely on him and not yourself. Today. Starting today. You need to confess Jesus And that you cannot be right with God without Jesus. And that you need a savior. And you need to confess that the only exclusive way to be made right with God is through Jesus. He is the only one who will straighten that road. And the righteous life that he lived and the death that he died on the cross and the resurrection that he experienced to give us new life. No other religion or belief system will do it because we don't need law. We need a savior. And when we humble ourselves before God and call upon Jesus to save us, he straightens and levels that path. And so my question for you today is will today be the day that you cry out to Jesus to be the one who does that? Will today be the day that you stop trying to climb the mountain? I know you've called yourself a Christian your whole life. But will today be the day you stop trying to climb the mountain and you trust Jesus? Or will today be the day that you finally throw yourselves into the arms of your Savior and believe that he will love you no matter what you've done? Uh, On February 9th, I'm so excited for this, a couple of weeks, three weeks, uh, we're gonna be doing baptisms here at our, during our service here in Grace Hill. We'll figure out a way to get 1,000 gallons of water right there and not get kicked out. You know, today God commands those who trusted in Jesus, who trust, like, Jesus, I need you to prepare the way. I need you to lower the mountains and I need you to be the one that, that saves me. We are commanded to be baptized as a symbol of what has already occurred inside of us like how Jesus has made us new and has saved us. Baptism is a symbol of that. 
And it's just a wonderful celebration of the work that Christ does in someone. And so it's, it's my prayer this morning that there would be people in this room this morning who will come to Jesus for the first time today and be baptized on February 9th. And if right now you're feeling like the Lord is tugging on your heart, don't fight him right now. If the Spirit is saying to you, hey, like he's talking to you, don't fight what the Spirit is saying to your heart right now. Let's not allow pride to get in the way of that. Let's not allow anxiety to get in the way of that or ego to get in the way of that. It could be you this morning. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray right now. Um, and this morning, if you need to cry out to God and ask Jesus to be your savior, just ask, pray along with me. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pray a prayer. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer of calling out to Jesus to be your savior. And afterwards, maybe during our worship time, uh, we're gonna do communion later too, maybe during that time, maybe after our service, maybe you could come up and tell me about it. Because I would love to walk you through what it means to follow Jesus. But why don't we all just close our eyes right now and let's pray. And if the spirit is tugging on your heart this morning, I want you to pray along with me. And God, before we pray that prayer, I do just wanna ask right now by your spirit, God, would you just speak to people's hearts? I imagine there are people in this room, God, who being a Christian has always been something they've identified themselves as, but maybe they've never actually trusted Jesus. And God, I just pray that this morning, right now, that your spirit would take away every obstacle from them doing that right now. And if God, if there are people in this room that they've never trusted you, they still don't know what they actually believe and they're wrestling through all of that, God, right now, Spirit, would you make yourself so real, so undeniable in this moment that they have no choice but to surrender their entire lives to you? God, we believe salvation is a miracle, an act of your Spirit upon people and Holy Spirit, we pray that in this moment you will act. And so if this is you, would you pray along with me and just say, hey, God, when I look at my life, I'm tired. Tired of trying to get up those mountains or across those valleys. Tired of running away from my past and all the things that have gone on in my life tired of pretending that I'm somebody that I'm not. And God, I'm realizing this morning that I am separated from you. That sin in, in my life has separated me from you. I confess that. I see that. I don't fight that, God. But God, I'm also realizing this morning that I cannot make my way to you. I can't get up that road. Jesus, I need you. I need you to make that path straight. 
I need you to take care of my sin. I need forgiveness. And I believe that you accomplish forgiveness on the cross. That you paid my debt off. And that you rose again from the dead and you are alive. And that when God looks on me today, he doesn't see my sin. He sees your righteousness. He forgives me. He's welcomed me into his family. So God, I believe that. And I wanna follow you for the rest of my life. Help me to know how to trust you, Jesus, with my entire life. In Jesus' name we pray.